The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context, according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding or, more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. 
Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Does God approve or disapprove of human sacrifice? In order to contrive this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, quote, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares this to the following verses. Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, quote, And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of, unquote. Exodus chapter 22, verse 29, quote, Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits and of thy liquors, the firstborn of thy son shalt thou give unto me. Unquote. Judges chapter 11, verse 39, speaking of Jephthah, quote, And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed, and she knew no man, and it was a custom in Israel, unquote. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, quote, But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni, and Methabosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillah, the Mehathalite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest, unquote. Verse 12 through 14 of the same chapter, which says, quote, And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, when the Philistines had slain Saul and Gilboa. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zilhah, in the sepulcher of Kish, his father. And they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the land, unquote. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, quote, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, 
And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered once sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, unquote. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, quote, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, unquote. Now I'm going to dedicate the rest of this episode to answering this rather complex question, but here in making this conclusion that there is a contradiction, Mr. Ash simply commits the error of combining non-sequitur issues and achieves a fallacy of composition with his argument. To put it simply, Mr. Ash is conflating human sacrifice with propitiatory sacrifice. Let me explain. At the outset, we have the revelation that it is God and God alone who is perfect and good in all of his attributes. At creation, we have the revelation that God created man i.e. Adam and Eve, in his image, and proclaim them as quote-unquote very good. With this being said, we have the further disclosure that while Adam and Eve were good, they were only good because they were covered by God's glory held in their abiding faith and trust in his covering glory. It should also be remembered that God's nature and attributes, in addition to being perfect, are immutable. That is, they don't change. At the same time, while Adam and Eve's attributes in nature were very good, they were mutable. That is, they are changeable. Adam and Eve's mutable nature was necessary in order to allow for their initial free will to choose whether to continue placing their faith and trust in God or to do otherwise. This, in turn, was a necessary commodity in order to make Adam and Eve's choice to trust and love God a meaningful choice, as opposed to them just being robots with no choice, and therefore whatever they do would simply be forced and therefore meaningless. Next, in order for there to be choice, there must be more than one thing or idea in existence to provide the opportunity to choose. In this case, the choice in question was for Adam and Eve to either trust and have faith in God's covering grace, which would be the basis of their continuing fellowship and righteousness, or to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and to attempt to be like God on the grounds of their own merits, works, knowledge, etc. As with all choices and decisions, there are consequences which follow as a result. Here, if Adam and Eve continue to maintain their covering grace given freely by God through faith and trust, then Adam and Eve would live. They would enjoy fellowship with God and they would continue to be very good. Conversely, as an axiomatic reality, if they chose to abandon their covering grace, they would be separated from God as a result. 
Since God is the only source of spiritual life, they would, as warned by God, die, i.e. be separated from God in the very moment that they turn from God, who is that source of life. Now, given the fact that God is immutable or cannot change, and that separation from God, who is the only source of spiritual life, means separation, sin, and death, once man chose to sin, something must happen in order to reconcile man back to God. As stated, God cannot change his attributes. So, one man chose to sin... We are all placed on the logical road to death. Death was and is a penalty for sin. The good news is that God already had a plan in mind wherein he, as God, would come in the person of God the Son, i.e. Jesus, and would be fully God and fully man. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness as only God can do and at the same time was fully man. After fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus volunteered to sacrifice himself and pay the price for death for our sins. So in the end, Jesus, who was righteous and innocent, paid our debt of death, while we, who are guilty and unrighteousness, have Christ's righteousness imputed to our account by God's grace through faith in Jesus' finished work. This transaction is called justification. However, we need to draw a distinct difference between the theological doctrine of justification and that of human sacrifice. Human sacrifice, generally, is defined as the act of killing one or more humans, usually as an offering to a deity, as part of a ritual. In specific, the act of human sacrifice is assumed to have the killing of oneself, another, or several people acting as an appeasement, granting favor to one or more deities being worshipped. Put simply, human sacrifice is a mechanism achieving some kind of quid pro quo between man and deity. Secondly, human sacrifice is always someone who is purely human, sacrificing themselves, or one or more others who are likewise purely human. From God's perspective, human sacrifice has absolutely no value to God according to the Bible in context. The reason is that in the case of human sacrifice, those who believe in such ultimately assume that the life or lives of those being sacrificed carry some kind of currency which buys God's favor. The problem is that if, as stated, all mankind has fallen short of God and there is none which is good, then according to Romans 3, our fallen state with all of its sin and rebellion would not carry any currency capable of buying anything with God. We one and all are bankrupt in God's eyes apart from Him, and therefore the sacrifice of any number of humans who are in sin will be incapable of ever buying any of God's favor. 
Further, the Reformed Christian position holds that it is God who works in and through us, and by virtue of Jesus' finished work and covering imputed righteousness, God finds infinite, sufficient, and efficient value. The reality of propitiation was variously demonstrated symbolically throughout the Old Testament by various animals, which were designated by God as clean animals, who were to be without blemish or spot. These animals were examples pointing forward and helping us to understand the substance and waiting, Jesus, who was and is the only human who was also fully God and thus perfect, who was able to sacrifice himself voluntarily so that we all could be spared. Here, Jesus is fully human, who because of his righteousness, holiness, had the intrinsic value and capacity as fully God, was able to please God via his own voluntary propitiatory sacrifice. It is only Mr. Ash who lives with the assumption that any man has value apart from God, who is the only one who can provide value. Consequently, It is only within the paradigm of Mr. Ash's world and life view that human sacrifice can achieve anything. Now, Mr. Ash will protest and say that because he does value human life first and foremost, he cares too much to ever actually carry out human sacrifice. But the truth is that Mr. Ash does so every day whenever, for example, he decides that killing an unborn child, i.e. abortion, is a choice in order to facilitate his own convenience. Mr. Ash can redefine terms all he wants, but in the end he is knowingly sacrificing another human at the altar of self-deification and the desire to do what is convenient and right in his own eyes. As we compare human sacrifice with propitiation, we can see that there is a complete difference in definition, cause, and effect. With this summary in mind, let us look at the examples presented by Mr. Ash to see how his interpretation measures up to a correct biblical worldview. First up, we have Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. Quote, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods, for even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Unquote. In this above example, we are talking about the practice of the Canaanites and other heathen parents who predominantly were in the routine habit of taking newborn infants and very young children and placing them alive into hot idol furnaces to be burned alive as offerings to their gods to obtain rain, crops, fertility, and other favors from their pagan deities. This is in contrast to God who nowhere in the Bible ever actually had anyone who was purely human sacrifice another person who was purely human in order to please him. 
Thus, the distinction and the prohibition are both clear, and there is no contradiction. Next, we have Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, which says, quote, And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of, unquote. Once again, in this verse, it must be reminded that in this incident, Isaac was never actually sacrificed, and he was spared by the same God who made the request. In so far as why God made the request, as pointed out in the episode entitled, Thine Only Son, and it is stated in the text itself, God was testing Abraham for obedience. God's intention, plan, and goal was never to sacrifice Isaac. The goal was to see Abraham's willing obedience and faith in God's provision. Secondly, as proposed, the incident serves as an intentional type pointing towards the substance of Jesus' sacrifice as well as God's sovereign control. Thus, there is no contradiction here because Genesis chapter 22 verse 2 and the surrounding text is ultimately a story where God himself spared Isaac from the human sacrifice by design. Next we have Exodus chapter 22 verse 29, quote, Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits, and of thy liquors, the firstborn of thy son shalt thou give unto me, unquote. Here in this example, Mr. Ash demonstrates his failure to do his research as well as his inability or unwillingness to discern types. Had Mr. Ash spent as much time researching with an open mind as he does superficially researching in order to find isolated words, phrases, and sentences which serve his intended purpose of mocking the Bible, Mr. Ash would not have this verse as a supposed contradiction. In order to understand the context of Exodus chapter 22, verse 29, we must go back to Exodus chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, which says, quote, That thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the male shalt be the Lord's, and every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem." Unquote. So, when we do proper research and look at the actual history of what God ordained, we see the following. In general, from right after Genesis 3, God instituted propitiatory sacrifice of an innocent firstborn male animal, which was to be without blemish for sin. In general, this was referred to, along with other similar grain and drink offerings, as the law of first fruits. We learn that God instituted the law of first fruits for three reasons. <clears throat> 1. 
Properly understood, we learn that we owe God everything. While we are not required to give God everything, we should be willing and we should definitely be giving God that which is first and that which is best. 2. By constantly and routinely giving the first and the best of what we have to God where animal lives are sacrificed, those who engage in such would have a profound, first-hand understanding of what sin results in, i.e. death. Were God not temporarily allowing for animals to be sacrificed for sin, the penalty of death would instead fall upon man. 3. The institute of propitiatory sacrifice of animals, grain, and drink all served as types pointing towards the ultimate and final sacrifice made by Jesus, who was the substance of those types. Now, based upon Exodus chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, God ordered the sacrifice of all firstborn. Ordinarily, because all creation is under the curse, the firstborn would also include firstborn human children. However, because God was and is merciful, he made provision under Exodus chapter 13 that the firstborn would be redeemed. In this case, according to Numbers chapter 18 verse 16, the Israelites were to give the Lord five shekels of silver when their firstborn son was one month old. So Exodus chapter 22 verse 29 is a general reminder that the firstborn belonged to God as does everything. However, the specifics of propitiatory first fruit law in Exodus chapter 13 verses 12 and 13 give us additional information that in the case of firstborn children, i.e. humans, they were to be redeemed by money and not sacrificed. Thus, we learn in full context that Mr. Ash is unaware or has ignored the fact that human children mentioned in Exodus chapter 22 verse 29 were never sacrificed but were, in fact, saved by the provision made by God in Exodus chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. Consequently, there is no contradiction. Next, we have Judges chapter 11, verse 39, quote, And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man as it was a custom in Israel." Unquote. In short, this incident tells the story of a man named Jephthah, who, facing seemingly insurmountable odds, agreed to help Israel and made a vow to God that if God would give him victory against Israel's enemies then Jephthah would sacrifice the first thing that came out of his house upon his return. Jephthah went on to defeat Israel's enemies and the only and it, <clears throat> Jephthah defeated Israel's enemies and 
As it turns out, his only daughter was the first thing that greeted him coming out of his home. Jephthah was very sorry for his vow, but the text says that he, quote, carried out his vow, which he vowed, he, quote, carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed, unquote. In the case of Jephthah and Mr. Ash's contention of a supposed contradiction that God approves of human sacrifice, several important things need to be noted. 1. Nowhere in this incident do we have a pronouncement from God that Jephthah should make this or any other vow. Nowhere do we find God commanding suggesting or approving Jephthah or anyone else to actually sacrifice his daughter. Sometimes Mr. Ash will reference Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 which says, quote, And what shall I more say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, unquote. Here in Hebrews, because the name Jephthah appears as one among many who are labeled as heroes of faith, Mr. Ash assumes and insists that calling Jephthah a hero of faith means that God thinks Jephthah is a hero because he sacrificed his daughter. However, the fact is that Jephthah is referred to as a hero of faith because he believed that God would deliver Israel's enemies into his hand despite the insurmountable odds which existed. Jephthah acted on his faith, put his life on the line, and was able, with God's help, to defeat Israel's enemies. Jephthah's sacrifice of his daughter was his own doing and had nothing to do with God and had nothing to do with qualifying him as a hero of faith. 2. Some scholars believe that there is considerable evidence that the girl was not killed, and that she simply was dedicated to the Lord, remained unmarried, and had no children. 3. If Jephthah offered his daughter as a literal burnt offering, he disobeyed God's instructions as found in the Law of Moses, I Leviticus chapter 18 verse 21, chapter 20 verse 2 through 5, Deuteronomy chapter 12 verse 31, and Deuteronomy 18 verse 10. Thus, if Jephthah did sacrifice and kill his daughter, it was his decision in violation of God's prohibition against human sacrifice, and not God who was doing so. Thus, once again, Mr. Ash is confusing a narrative of a historical event with both very good and potentially very bad results where God is neither approving or commenting on said bad events with Mr. Ash's assumption that God is directing Jephthah to commit human sacrifice or he is approving of it. But the truth is that the assumptions by Mr. Ash or anyone else do not provide the basis for contradictions. At best, an assumption is merely a theory which requires research to determine what the facts are. The fact is, Jephthah made a foolish vow, 
And having made it, he should have redeemed his daughter under the provisions of Exodus chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, as previously discussed. And throughout it all, God was never directing or approving Jephthah to kill his daughter, if in fact that was what he did. Next, we have 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Quote, but the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, and the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzilla, the Mahalothite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord, and they fell all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest, unquote. Continuing in chapter 21, verses 12 through 14, we read, quote, And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jebeth Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged. And the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son buried they in the country of Benjamin in Zillah, in the sepulcher of Kish his father, and they performed all that the king commanded, and after that God was entreated for the land." Unquote. Now, in order to understand the context of the story behind this supposed contradiction, we need to recognize that Mr. Ash again stands on two issues. One, ultimately, seven adults were put to death. At two, at the end of verse 14, we have the statement, quote, and after that God was entreated for the land, unquote. Based upon these two issues, Mr. Ash makes the assumption and concludes that the reason God was, quote, unquote, entreated was because of a human sacrifice to him. Unfortunately for Mr. Ash, when we look at the specifics of the incident as well as the whole of God's word in context, we see something very different. First of all, the seven adults in question were hung by the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were originally a pagan group of peoples who did not worship Yahweh. As a result, the seven were not killed as a sacrifice by Israel to gain God's favor. They were delivered to the Gibeonites for crimes that were committed and were executed for those crimes. There was no sacrifice. Second, as a matter of history, God sometimes required that sinful people who deserved capital punishment be put to death for their sins. In keeping with this history, the seven who were hung by the Gibeonites were guilty of offenses that deserved the death penalty. This again points out the fact that the execution was part of a legal process not a religious sacrificial ritual toward any deity. Third, God's favor, or lack thereof, was always historically driven by Israel's faith and obedience towards God. One can look time and time again and see that wherever 
And whenever Israel was in rebellion to God, God delivered Israel to plague, famine, loss, captivity, and other punishments designed to drive them to repentance. Whenever and wherever Israel repented, turned to God, and served him in faith and obedience, God was, quote-unquote, entreated and blessed Israel accordingly. In conjunction with this, we have the axiomatic reality that sin, rebellion, and separation from God, who is the only source of spiritual blessing and eternal life, leaves by necessity varying and increasingly emptiness, meaninglessness, vanity, delusion, sickness, and death, both in the immediate and eternally. Conversely, Repentance, submission, obedience, awe, respect, faith, and trust serve by God's grace to reconcile us, to justify us, and to sanctify us to increasingly closer and more meaningful fellowship with God. We may have tribulation, trial, and suffering in the immediate, but it is not a result of God's abandonment or wrath. It is because we live in a world still beset by the curse of sin. However, in and through everything, we have the promise that eternal life and joy unspeakable in his presence are our inheritance. So, suffering, sickness, and even death are in many cases the natural outcome when we oppose ourselves to God and his law. This is the same as when we oppose ourselves to healthy eating, exercise, rest, etc. In these cases... Sickness, fatigue, and death are the logical result. But it is a false dichotomy to say that death, accidental or intentional, is what God is seeking in order to be satisfied or placated. In the case of 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, God's favor with Israel was not possible because Saul and others had sinned as Israel's leader and brought disrepute to God and Israel's integrity. Israel remained out of harmony with God until Israel finally repented and turned those responsible over to the Gibeonites for legal punishment. Since the seven responsible had been responsible for killing large numbers of Gibeonites, the only equitable punishment was to execute them. However, God was not entreated because of a human sacrifice. God was entreated because Israel's leaders had taken responsibility for its sin of treachery and murder against the Gibeonites. Thus, there is no contradiction here because there was no human sacrifice. There was only judicial process ending with justice And God was not appeased by human sacrifice. God was appeased by Israel's repentance and acceptance of responsibility in their wrongdoing. Next we have Hebrews chapter 10 verses 10 through 12. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. 
Here, Mr. Ash assumes we have an example of human sacrifice. But Mr. Ash's use of this example to demonstrate a contradiction fails on four significant points. One, first of all, while Jesus is fully man, i.e. human, he is also fully God. Thus, we have an example here which is unique in all of time and space. Since Jesus is God, he can, as God, rise above any prohibitions he might place upon those who are purely human. God is sovereign, and thus, whatever he does, particularly when in this case it involves himself, can only be perfect according to his nature. Second, while man and sin made Christ's sacrifice necessary and man was involved, strictly speaking, Christ's sacrifice was voluntary. God chose to become fully man in the second person of his son, Jesus. Jesus chose to allow himself to be crucified and to die. The various men participating in Jesus' capture, trial, and crucifixion had the illusion that they were in control. However, the truth was that God had planned everything which happened in advance. While they were not in control, they all bear the responsibility, and we all are the cause. Number three, unlike any other human sacrifice, Jesus died and rose from death by the power of God. Number four, finally, Without Jesus' sacrifice, we all would be lost hopelessly in sin and rebellion, separated from God for all eternity. Jesus is the only one who, as fully God and fully man, can accomplish this. One could engage in all the human sacrifice in the world and never do what Christ was able to do. Finally, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, quote, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us." Unquote. Here again, Mr. Ash simply finds a verse repeating the essential message of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice. As before, this and similar verses fail to show a contradiction regarding a prohibition against human sacrifices for all of the reasons heretofore detailed. Apparently, Mr. Ash fails to understand that Christ's propitiatory sacrifice is the nucleus of the gospel. Were it not for this, good news all would be lost, and we, like Mr. Ash, would be awash in the sea of empty relativism, opinion, consensus, and doing whatever is right in our own eyes. In all, to date in this series, we have examined and answered 23 questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like, who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, 
In truth, these 23 and a myriad remaining of others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah.